Don't look now. Welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hegeman, coming to you yet again with another interesting tale of something. <laughs> As always, we've got, got Jenny with our story of the week, you know, hidden from me. So I will find out what our topic is as you do. So, uh, Jenny, what are we talking about? Hmm. I, in the news lately, there have been so many failed art restorations <laughs> i haven't seen any recent ones so that that sounds fun oh, there's just this one really... that springs to mind as soon as you you say that but yeah is it the potato face one yes yes yeah yes. The... so that one's in spain yep yeah and they hired like they're not hiring professional restorationists to do these things. So like that particular one I think was done by a furniture restorer in Spain. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. That sounds right. Right. But that was, and there's that was like a awesome. painting where they wipe, they cleaned yeah. the canvas down and then yeah. penciled one in. I, yeah. Yeah. Those <sighs> are the two that I, I think of just immediately as the, rubbed away Jesus that sketched back in in a terrible, terrible way. And uh, potato face, you know, it's a good way to describe it. So, so at any rate, um, let's get started. All right. Art restoration. I love art. What better to talk about than a piece of art that has been poorly restored, but also is one of the most stolen pieces of art in history. Huh. I am, I am interested to know. All right. Well, here it goes. So our story takes place kind of in Belgium. So if you're walking in Belgium, you might not stop to think about this large oxidized steel sculpture in the form of framework on the altarpiece of an empty cathedral. It's outlined in metal. It's really impressive to look at. But you may just kind of look at it, shrug, and be like, okay, and not realize that you're looking at this piece of art called the Ghent Altarpiece, which was completed in 1432 by Jan van Eck. Hmm. You might just walk away, and the thing that you're going to miss is that there is a really interesting story. So there's these empty frames that are on this altarpiece and why is the question so the ghent altarpiece is the most frequently stolen artwork in history it's been burgled all or in part on six occasions <laughs> and it's been part of 13 crimes in its 600 year existence nice right i would not have guessed it's such an, it's one of those ones where you just kind of giggle the more you think about it too. So it's super easy to argue that this monumental thing is one of the most influential paintings ever made um, because it was the first major oil painting and it was one of the first artistic realist paintings. Um, it actually launched the, the preferred medium of oil painting 
and that style of paintings, which was popular for several centuries. Okay. Interesting. So this is one of those sentences that I pulled from a uh, article and I just think it's really funny. So the art blossoms with superlatives and holds your interest, whether you'd be naturally inclined to a work of art or just enjoy a good true crime story. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a coffee commercial. It does, right? I love it. So the Ghent altarpiece is made of 20 individual painted panels that are linked in a massive hinged framework. It is opened on its hinges for a religious holiday, but remains closed most of the year. Um, At which point only eight of the 20 panels are painted on both the front and back sides. So you can only see those panels. Okay. The subject matter of these, they're called verso, which means the backside Mm -hmm. um, is visible when it's closed. And this is the Annunciation. So uh, if you don't know anything about religion, it's when the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she will bear the son of God. And portraits of the donors who paid for the altarpiece and their patron saints also grace it because you got to, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's why you're paying the big bucks is to get yourself up there on the altar for all time. So Exactly. The altarpiece also has kind of a puzzle box appearance. Um, Inside, there's little treasures that you look at and you try to decipher their meaning. When when it's open, the center displays an idealized field full of figures. There's saints, there's martyrs, there's clergies, there's hermits, there's judges, there's knights of Christ, there's an angelic choir. um, And they're all supposed to be making this pilgrimage to pay homage to the central figure who is this lamb on a sacrificial altar. Um, And he's on this altar and he looks really proud and he's bleeding into a golden chalice and it's often referred, well, I guess it's called the adoration of the mystic lamb. Um, And the precise meaning of the adoration of the mystic lamb and the meaning of dozens of obscure symbols have been the subject of centuries of scholarly debate because nobody likes to argue like, religious iconographists (laughs) people that study symbols loved are it's kind of like the the mona lisa everybody likes to argue what it really means yep i can i can imagine everybody having their their da vinci code moment where they're all sure there's a great meaning to something so this one is super rich i encourage everyone to look it up because the there's so many panels and each of them there's so much going on yeah, and I'm, it's I'm looking at it as we speak now. I pulled it up on my phone so I can see it. It's pretty impressive. It is. It's it's beautiful. Okay, so above the vast field of the adoration of the mystic lamb in the upper panels is God, um, who sits enthroned with Mary and John the Baptist on either side. And the figure of God has his hand raised in blessing. Um and they say that the hand is painted with an astonishing realism because you can see his veins bulging. You can see the tiny hairs that are on his poor scored skin. Like it's very, very detailed. Um, at his foot, there's a crown that's clustered in light reflecting jewels and the fringe of the cloak is woven in gold threads. And then above his head is an arc shaped, an arc rune like inscription thing. Um, and you can even see the individual's hairs painted onto his beard. So it's super detailed. Because it's 
not that big, really, this part. Yeah. Yeah. So the level of minute detail is in such an enormous artwork is super unprecedented at the time. Um, until the altarpiece was painted, only portrait miniatures and illuminated manuscripts contained such fine detail. Nothing like this intricacy had ever been seen before on such a scale by artists or admirers. Um, and there was a really important art historian who wrote that um, his that Van X I functioned as a microscope. So I saw this in several articles. Um, but what they said was that he could see things as though he could see it under a microscope, but also like he could see it under a telescope at the same time. So that really teeny tiny, but also the bigger picture. Yeah. So yeah. He, they say that the viewers of the Gantalter piece are privy to God's vision of the world. Um, so some of the experiences of what he sees when he looks down from heaven and how he can count the hairs on your head. Very poetic. Nice. Symbolic. Right? Very yeah. symbolic. So they talk about how the, the altarpiece jewels, you can see them shine with refracted light. You can see individual hairs on the manes of horses. Um, each of the altarpieces, 100 plus figures, have very personalized facial features. So sometimes when you look at paintings, especially of, with a lot of people, they all kind of look alike. These ones all have very personalized features. Um, down to the fact that they show sweat, wrinkles, veins, even people flaring their nostrils. So it's just things that are just super mundane and things that are a little bit more elegant. Yeah. You can see the well, tufts Go ahead. Like pre-Renaissance paintings are just never very realistic, or at least what I think of. I mean, I'm not an art, I'm not an art historian, but I always think of the period of, yeah, well, these people that don't look realistic, no one's got eyebrows and they're all just like bland didn't they actually pluck their eyebrows out maybe i just think it's i always get the feeling it's like artists didn't want to draw eyebrows so they just didn't bother and made it up later kind of like they have simpsons only have like four fingers because five was too hard to draw so you know yeah exactly it's like yeah i'm just not gonna bother and i'm gonna say it's artistic or yeah you know it's close enough right totes yeah <laughs> They're people. I can tell they're people, right? Right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. They kind of look people esque. Yeah, like you know, you look at some of the old portraits in like the royal galleries, and they go through that phases of, oh, this is great. This is okay. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> Have you ever seen that giant painting of Henry the Eighth? Um, it's like the full body one where he's large and in charge, and like yeah, it's massive. The classic one. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, I watched this whole documentary about the artist that painted it, and it was the funniest freaking document. It's, I it bordered the line of mockumentary. If I can find <laughs> it, I will post it somewhere because I literally used to invite people over to watch it nice. so that I could giggle to their reactions because it was so absurd. That sounds fun. Oh, it was the guy that does the thing, the um, narrating and stuff for it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's amazing. I'm gonna have to find it now. I'll find nice. it and I'll tell you about it. So amazing. Okay. So the question that you're probably wondering is how could he get such detail? Well, the detail was because of the oil paints he was using. So because oil paints are translucent, you can build up layer upon layer without covering up everything. Okay. 
um, at that time before he used the oil, what people were using was this egg based tempura, which was like an opaque thing. So mm-hmm. when you would paint, you would cover up the previous layer and oil allowed for a lot more subtlety and it was a lot easier to control. Nice. Also, he uses brushes that are so small. Sometimes they only have one or two hairs in them. That's impressive. Right? So I have to say, my, my few attempts at painting, I do not have that kind of control. <laughs> I don't have that kind of patience to put individual hairs on people with two paint, like two bristles on my brush. Sorry. Yeah. You know, not, not my, not my thing. I, not that kind of OCD, I guess, but. Me either. So the Ghent altarpiece was Van Eck's first major public work. It was also the first large-scale oil painting to gain international renown. Um, Even though he's not the one that invented oil painting, he was the first one to exploit it for its true capabilities. Um, And he was able to create that realistic detail. And he made this artwork a point of pilgrimage for artists and intellectuals at the moment. Um, And the paint paint right and i don't know what that sentence was supposed to mean i must have been tired when i wrote it i said (laughs) the paint would dry for centuries but i don't think that's what i meant you know as you do i don't know um the international reputation for the painting and its painter um particularly taking into account the fact that it was the establishment of this new artistic medium became the universal choice for centuries And so a lot of people will argue that it's one of the most important paintings in all of history. It's also the size of a barn door and weighs more than an elephant. Nice. Right. So the work's fame and the wish to possess it became more and more cumulative over time. So when it was unveiled to the public on May 6, 1432, Um, Like I said, it was this object of pilgrimage for artists, for cultured travels, and they all voyaged to the Cathedral of St. Bavo, which is in the city center of Ghent in northwest Belgium, to admire it. Um, It was the Bilabo Guggenheim Museum of its day. The Guggenheim. I don't know what Bilabo. It doesn't sound right. I can't remember. So um, now I got lost in my, I got excited because I got stuck on that word. I liked it. Blabo. Blabo. <laughs> I'm so tired, you guys. Um, so it was the first great panel painting of the Renaissance and it was a forerunner to all artistic realism movements. And the fact that it was so big yet so small and so complex was even another level of what made people so excited about it. So for the first century that it existed and lived in the Cathedral of San Bavo in Ghent, nothing really happened. And then 1566 happens and all hell breaks loose. So (laughs) Protestant militants broke down the cathedral doors with an improvised battering ram. And they were like, we are gonna burn this shit down. Because they thought it was an example of Catholic idolatry and it was really excessive, which means that they need to get rid of it. However, um, apparently the Catholics had guards at this time as, you know, do they still do that? I don't know. Maybe the priests are considered guards. I got distracted again. Sorry. Mm -hmm. 
but the Catholic guards were alerted um, and they had actually disassembled this entire paneled artwork and hid it in the cathedral tower where it survived totally unscathed because they couldn't find it. Nice. So after that, in 1794, during the French Republic, uh, the French Republican troops captured Ghent and they removed with the four center panels and shipped them to the Louvre in Paris, which was Napoleon's new museum of art. What they failed to take, the local vicar managed to carry out. Now, I am under educated on the difference between a vicar and a Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. Um, because I always thought that vicars were like Episcopalian. Yeah, I always think of that as Anglican stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. So, know. yeah, I don't know. Don't know. Maybe. Yeah, good, maybe he was good his buddy question. and took it. Um, so, the local vicar managed to carry it out in 1816 when the bishop was out of town. The renegade vicar who had swiped these pieces sold them. And they were bought by a Brussels art dealer and then sold to a British collector who then sold them to the King of Prussia, who planned (laughs) to build an art collection that was going to be bigger, better, and badder than the Louvre. Nice. That is a, that is a theme from when I was reading up on World War One and Germany's desperate attempt to outshine France in all things. (laughs) It was interesting. Seems like it was definitely going on at that point, so. You know, they had they were fancy. Yeah. There was a definite Berlin must be a place full of art more so than Paris, you know. And yeah. Is it good times? Yeah. No, it is not, unfortunately. But uh, you know. I, was say, I didn't go to Berlin when I was in Germany. There's lots of beautiful things in Germany. Oh. I'm I sure. Can, I mean, I since you know. I haven't been to Paris, I can't compare. However, no, I don't have anything to compare it to. Still want yeah. to go to the British Museum. Sorry. Yep. No, British Museum's cool. See all the non-British things in the British Museum. So I know. And the British Museum is kind of like the Holy Roman Empire. It's neither British nor technically a taste for stolen art. The British Museum is a great place to go. Exactly. So among its other adventures, the uh, altarpiece was hidden during the First World War from the Germans by an enterprising cathedral canon who smuggled it out to a series of locations, um, always staying one step ahead of the occupying Germans who were super determined they were going to capture it. So I don't really know how the hell it got from the King of Prussia to there, but it did. (laughs) And then World War II starts. And it was one of the 7,000 masterpieces seized by the Nazis destined for Hitler's super museum. So this particular cache of looted art that it was part of was hidden in a salt mine. um, And it was saved from destruction thanks to a pair of monuments men. Yes, just like the movie with what's his names and what's his name. Yep. George Clooney and Matt Damon. Um, So it was saved for destruction thanks to the monument men and to the guerrilla actions of local members of the Austrian resistance. Uh, There's apparently also a book based on this whole scenario. So if you go to Ghent today, you'll see 11 twelfths of the original altarpiece. So they've gotten 11 out of 12 put back together, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. 
One of the 12 panels was stolen in 1934 and never recovered. This is the one that's kind of like that enduring mystery. Yeah. Um, the theft seems to have been designed based on the plot of a book because there was this bizarre series of ransom demands that led to the recovery of part of the stolen panel, which had been split vertically in Berlin. So you could display the front and the back side by side. But the section that was, that they called the righteous judges still is missing. Hmm. Right. But it doesn't stay there long because some thieves break in and make off with the lower left panel. Karma. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's wild. So this is like that enduring mystery that's part of the popular culture of the people of Ghent. So it's like that thing that they, that embedded cultural iconography. Yeah. Now there's clues though. A clue uncovered decades ago suggests tantalizingly that the panel may be hidden somewhere in plain sight where no one can recover it without attracting public attention. That's what the ransom note says. So like, it's kind of this running game in Ghent, if you're there to keep an eye out for it. Cause they think (laughs) it's really obvious. It's just sitting in some restaurants as all wall art and no one's noticed it or something. I think it's probably in somebody's house if we're real honest. You know, like when I listen to my podcast and they're always like, well, if they had just released this little bit of evidence at the time, someone would have recognized these very specific curtains or this very specific bedspread. You would have known the person. I think this is that same kind of talk. Yeah. Um, Someone's quoted as saying, this may sound very silly, but in fact, the Nazis and Hitler in particularly in particular, were absolutely convinced that the occult and supernatural were real. And they thought that the Ghent altarpiece was thought to be sort of a mystical treasure map showing the location of the relics of Christ's passion, which is why that piece is missing. So they could never find it. Nice. So, you know, some search for the Holy Grail stuff going on there. So. Right. All right. So um, through centuries of misadventure, it's pretty amazing that it's been as together as it is. The uh, original framework, though, that it was surrounded by um, was really highly sculpted, really ornate. They think it got lost during the Calvinist riots. And there, what it's currently housed in was created by artist Chris Martin. Um, and it's just kind of a minimalist reproduction made out of iron. And it was done in the 1980s-ish. What year is that? 2007. It was done in 2007. As you do, Jen, you read well. (laughs) So, yeah. All right. Then let's move on. Recently... The altarpiece underwent a three-year conservation initiative. So they basically wanted to clean it up, fix some of the cracking paint, because over time, um, oil paints kind of crack. So the Royal Institute for Cultural Heritage in Belgium decided that they were going to 
do this really important restoration. And they had found long concealed under layers of paint from previous restorations, um, some details that they were going to bring back to life. So what they did was um, clean up the painting is what we're going to call this. Okay. And they discovered a surprisingly human-like face on the sacrificial lamb representing Christ. If you look at it, it is disturbing. The eyes face forward, not to the side <laughs> like they do in the original. Huh. And there's some buildings that reflect the architecture of medieval Gantt, which is really important to them because they don't really know what it looked like, right? Okay. So this project cost 2.2 million euros, which is about $2.44 million to carry out. Um, and actually they did have experts do this. Okay. It required the experts to use microscopes and a surgical scalpel to chip away centimeter by centimeter at this 16th century overpainting job. So it's this really painstaking process. And it showed that roughly 70% of the altarpiece's original outer panels had been hidden under brown varnish for centuries. Um, which was really common at one point in time to go back to these old oil paintings and cover them in varnish with the idea that it would protect them. Yeah, that seems to be a thing. Like every time I've seen any art restoration restoration thing, they're always removing that. Right. It And that's, it, it really does damage the intensity of the color. So when you yeah. do that, it, it takes it to kind of this yellow brownie color. And when they take it off, suddenly you've got all these rich clean colors and everybody's like oh it's so much more vibrant it's just yeah. like it was the day it was painted anyhow nice so uh yeah uh the adoration of the mystic lamb which appeared in one of the five lower inner panels contained a particularly notable revelation the face of the sacrificial lamb is much more human-like and engaging than previously recognized. No, it is nightmare-inducing. I'm just going <laughs> to People describe the lamb as being more cartoonish. Um, and here's an interesting fact. Remember, I keep saying just one guy painted it. Actually, it was brothers that painted it. So one brother started it and the other brother finished it. So art historians are trying to determine which of the brothers painted the animal. Okay. So the other cool part for, about the restoration, the part that actually is interesting is that the restoration on the depictions of buildings in the altarpiece proved that the tower of the cathedral in Utrecht um, can be seen on the horizon is part of the original composition. Because I guess at one point they thought that this, cathedral at Utrecht was actually a myth and that it was not painted in until the 16th century. Okay. So I don't know why it's so exciting, but to them, that's really exciting. Right. Nice. As you're saying this, I'm, I'm looking at the pictures of the lamb and yeah, it's a creepily human face making like duck face at you. It's pretty, it's pretty. It doesn't look, I, it looked much better before they did it. That's my personal opinion. <laughs> I just wonder how much they've ruined these paintings by doing some of these res restorations. Well, it's it's restored to its natural beauty, which might be disturbing, but you know. Is it though? If it's been the other way for hundreds of years, is it restoring it to its natural beauty? It's restoring it to its original beauty. How's that? It could have been a previous sketch. It bothers me. Bothers yeah. me. <sighs> I'll, I'll definitely have to include a picture of the, the creepy lamb, so. 
on on the Facebook. I think that's a yes, good choice. Yes, for sure. So the restored panels, you can now view them through mid-January at the Museum of Fine Arts in Ghent. Afterward, they will be displayed in St. Bavo's Cathedral. Um, the first deputy, Kurt Moens of the province of East Flanders, which is where this is, says, thanks to this restoration, you can once again enjoy the full color richness that was established 500 years ago by Jan van Eck. Standing face to face with the mystic lamb is a particularly intense encounter, something every Fleming should experience at least once in their life. Mm -hmm. So it's there now. You can go check that out. Let's go down the rabbit hole. All right. Okay. So it was commissioned originally by a rich merchant and financier named Eust Viet for his and his wife's private chapel because rich people had things like that. It actually, I said it was painted by brothers, right? So the guy yep. that started it was Hubert von Eck and he died in 1426 uh, partway through painting it. So his younger brother, Jan von Eck completed the painting. Nice. That's then, yeah, it'd be interesting to know who did what and it's very interesting to me. I always wonder, like, in these instances, can you imagine not my brother started this painting and I finished it? Like, who's the famous one then, right? Yeah. And what Yeah, I had no thought? idea. I've always heard the name, you know, Van Eyck or whatever, but I never knew who didn't know it was two people. So that's It's Van Eyck, not Van Eck. Oh I don't God, actually know. So I, I mean, I'm glad we corrected that. That's good. I, I don't know that it, that's actually a correction. <laughs> I, I, now that you say it, actually, I think I've heard Van Eyck, not Van Eck, but it looks like Eck and I'm saying it. Still. Yeah, it's it's like, what, E-Y-C-K or something? Yeah, it's not. E-Y-C-K, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird looking thing, but. It's Dutch, right? Dutch? Flemish. Flemish, which is Dutch. So they're right. the, they're the Dutch speaking Belgians. So. There you go. All right. Well, there used I'm to be. I'm pretty writing. sure that's the case. I always get, I know the the Belgians out there will kill me, but I always forget between the the Flemish and the Walloons, who's who. But I think the Walloons are the French-speaking people, and the Flemish are the Dutch-speaking people. But I think you're right. I don't know. I don't yeah, obviously. Pretty know sure that's the case. I feel like you I know. don't know enough about. They're willing to murder each other over it, so I don't. You know, if I go on the public and get this wrong, I might, you know, get death threats or something, but. Pull it together, Will. We don't want death yeah. threats. Yeah, no. Don't want to. Don't want to offend the Walloons out there or something. So remember, I said there used to be a different frame. Yeah. On the original frame, uh, there was a saying that they think Hubert Van Eck himself wrote that said, "Greater than anyone." Um, but that since Jan Van Eck finished it, he called himself the second best in all of art. <laughs> which makes me kind of sad um and there's speculation that the original frame may have had clockwork kind of mechanisms for moving shutters and playing music huh yeah stupid reformation ruining nice things <laughs> finally the Gant altarpiece which is a unique work of art has a lot of unsolved riddles and mysteries um, it's thought that on the panel with the townscape and Arethian Sybil, human faces can be seen in the sky, but nobody really knows what that represents. 
Um, and the skyline on the central panel is supposed to be a collage of fictional and real buildings. And during one of the restorations in 1951, the lamb looked like it had four ears, which is why they started messing around with the lamb's face. And it looks like the animal's ears were painted over when modifications were made in 1550. Okay. So it looks like for a while they did, when they did one of the restorations, you could see all four ears of the lamb at one time. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, um, people use it. Like I said, the Nazis were certain that if you looked at it, you, it solved the riddle of where all of the various things that would keep you safe in a war we're at i don't know probably not anywho that's the gent altarpiece the you know most famous stolen art repeatedly nice i feel like we say that about a lot of stolen art though so there there is just a lot of stolen art there it's kind of like whenever you listen to a serial killer story there was like this is the most prolific serial killer in history at what point is that true like who is actually (laughs) the most prolific one because i feel like we're getting further from the light every time that we say that yeah it sounds good i guess yes but yeah no this is that's that's a lot of stealing so yeah and kind of a I don't know. It's it's one of those. If it ha- if it could talk, yeah, you know, it's been on some adventures. It seems <laughs> maybe it knows where the amber room is. Somebody does. Somebody does. It's going to turn up one of these days. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. I think that it's the new amber room. Um, they just reused all the amber and said that it was the same. It was different. Yeah, <laughs> it's Russia's greatest prank. I mean, I feel like Russia has got one up their sleeve somewhere. We just yeah. haven't seen it yet. <laughs> uh, oh, cool! That is interesting. I I'd never seen it before, so it, it's that is cool. I'm gonna have to check it out more for a piece of art that's so supposedly important to like a movement and so historically significant for being stolen so many times you'd think that we would have seen it everywhere right yeah i mean it's interesting because yeah it's, it's that style that i immediately associate with da vinci and the renaissance oils and all that kind of stuff so yeah. it makes sense that that's the you know the first one because that's prior to da vinci and everything so I would love, and maybe I'll have to do an episode on this at some point, but like why everybody is so convinced that there is so much like hidden in the art, you know, like everybody loves to put things in art, you know, everybody's obsessed with hidden meaning in books and all of that kind of stuff. And it's almost painful when I read a book and someone ruins it for me by giving me their analysis. I always love when, the author hears an analysis for their book and they're like, no, I didn't, I didn't mean that. Like it's yeah. my thing. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I, I always get, I, I, I'm one of those people that like, like reading things just for what they're actually saying. <laughs> and they're the, there's always tons of symbolism put on all kinds of things. I'm sure some of it is true, but most of it just seems like bullshit to me, but right. I mean, it just seems like you write a thing and then 
if everybody likes it, then they then throw all this meaning onto it and then act like you're a genius and you just go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I meant. Yeah. It, it symbolizes man's yearning for whatever. And, you know, I think those are the statements that get me when I hear the analysis of books or paintings, when they're like, it symbolizes this struggle between heaven and earth. And I'm like, where the hell did you get that? It's a blade of grass. It's a picture of grass. Like (laughs) it could just be nature that we're looking at. Like dude saw some grass and painted it. Like it doesn't have, not everything has to be deep, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. But everybody likes it a lot more if it's deep. So, you know, got to kind of force it into that framework somehow. Do you realize in 20 years, someone's going to look back at podcasts and be like, during this podcast about art, what Jen and Will were really trying to say was that art is symbolic yep. in its flight for humanity. So yeah, I'll aspire to that because that means somebody's going back and looking at this for reasons that are, you know, one of us got famous or infamous. So I'm hoping for famous and not infamous, but you know, I don't know. Be looking uh, back at our I podcast, looking infamous, for so I get it for signs of what went wrong, but you know, I'll tell you what the signs are. The signs are, I about lost it this weekend. Some lady open mouth coughed on me in a grocery store without a mask on. And I was so tired because I had already worked all weekend was still working this weekend and just took a break to go grab groceries. And I thought my head was going to explode on her. Um, That is insane. Yeah. And then immediately, you know, I'm work I'm working with the people at work and I'm like, so this almost happened. And the only reason I literally contained myself was because I didn't want it to reflect poorly on work. <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't want to be the girl in the newspaper that lost her mind at the high V and started throwing things in an aisle. Yeah, but I thought about it. It'd be good to see it done for the other reason at least once. Right. <laughs> you see somebody throwing a fit because somebody didn't wear a damn mask and coughed all over them instead of throwing a tantrum because they don't want to. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, most people, if you can't wear a mask, I, I mean, I've seen people at the store that can't for various reasons and yeah. most of the time okay with it. But if you're coughing openly <laughs> on people, that's where I draw the mother effing line. Like yeah, this, That is messed up. And then to glare at me, that was the part that got me. I was like, <laughs> you just coughed on me and glare. I will throw this bag of pinto beans I just found at you, lady. It weighs 400 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember early in the pandemic, I think it was, it might have been in France. Somebody was going around licking oranges in a small store and got knocked out by the owner just walked up and cold cocked him in the face and knocked him unconscious. But, you know, I mean, I kind of like, no, we're not having that shit. But, you know, I kind of get it. Like even on a non weird pandemic year, if I walked into a store and saw someone licking oranges, I'd be like, what the fuck is happening? Right now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like why? What? What possesses some people is beyond me. And I'm sure people say that about me all the time, but. Yeah. I mean, some people, man, I I don't know. Also, I think that the bunnies are having babies again because I can hear them under my living room again. (laughs) Nice. Well, we've got a a mouse problem in the electrical engineering department right now. So. None of that surprises me. How much food is in the labs? 
Yep. So apparently they, they really like the candy in the main office. And uh, oh! Dr. Warren just uh, trapped one in his office the other day. So. Oh, nope. Nope. I'm glad I don't work there anymore. Nope. Yep. So, so my, you know, my suggestion is we need an office cat. So, you know, I think we just got to adopt a cat and then. I have a PowerPoint. In the office. I created a PowerPoint. I'll give it to you to give to Dawn about why we needed an office cat. I was pushing for yep. a Maine Coon. There you go. I'm I'm happy to carry that banner. So, yeah. And if I recall right, he said that we couldn't get it because I was allergic to it or some nonsense yep. like that. But yeah, I made a whole PowerPoint presentation for one of our office staff meetings one time because um, people were being mean to me. Mm-hmm. I also have one on how to order a pizza that you can give to the professors when they forget. Nice. See, I yeah. think, you know, worst case, we get ourselves a Mexican hairless and paint it purple. And then, you know, voila, no allergies, office cat, horrifying, all, all of it together. Is it just, just me you know. or does hair, do hairless cats look like they would feel oily. They look just terrifying. But yeah. They just they do. In my head, they look like they're gonna be greasy or something. And I just yeah. I can't make my brain do that. Yeah. They just I don't know. They're not my thing, but clearly they are some people's thing, but they they creep me out. Yeah. yeah. They're not my thing. I'm I'm down with a Maine Coon though. I, if if you guys yeah. can do that, I support that. See, I'm all good for it. I I think we need to just like let it roam the department, and then like you know, students can pet it, have finals time decompression, all that good stuff. Remember, Larry used to have the dog that he would bring into student services. Yeah. Yeah. I'm never going to be able to find. I cannot believe. I think I deleted my why we should get an office cat. I think it must've been on my desktop, not on my. I know. Oh, that makes me sad. I did. I did a 15 minute presentation with pictures on reasons why we should get an office cat. And I bet at the time I thought I'll never need this again, <laughs> <laughs> but I did definitely save the PowerPoint on how to order pizza because nice. it came up so many times. <laughs> well, anyway, we're, going to push for an office cat so i think you should do it i fully support that decision because you know sounds good it's faculty it's really meeting tomorrow i'm going for it so yeah i ooh, is it a faculty meeting tomorrow oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. do it and then remind them how to order pizza you go to the website <laughs> you order it and you don't ask the office person oh yeah six times six times i was asked twice by the same person <laughs> I was like, you call them, but who do I call? The where do you want pizza? Why is this a question? <laughs> Have you never ordered takeout before? Oh. That is interesting. Yeah, it was very interesting. Sometimes the most capable people can't do the basic things, which usually I understand and am very forgiving of, but not always. Apparently, <laughs> draw the line at ordering pizza. Hey. I do. For people that have PhDs in engineering, you probably have ordered pizza once in your life. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah. Yeah. I I have done so successfully even. See? Just, yeah. Anywho. Hey. Yeah. No, I don't remember what I was just going to ask you. Okay. Never mind. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. 
think that wraps us up. So, you know, thanks to our, our loyal listeners for catching us once again. And, uh, as always, you know, feel free to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, and uh, we will catch you all next week. Bye, Bye folks.